This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. From Heritage Radio, it's Why Food, a show about creators, entrepreneurs, and visionaries in the food industry and the stories behind their success. And this week, I'm here with Jordan Silbert from Q Drinks. Welcome to the studio, Jordan. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing so good, man. So good. We're here sipping on some gin, some Never Sink gin. It's delicious. Um, and it totally ties into what you do with Q Drinks, because the first product that you invented was a Q-tonic. Exactly, exactly. And I uh, invented it one night uh, because I really liked my gin, and the tonic was uh, screwing it up. I thought the, the world needed a better tonic water. Like, I have come up with so many ideas when I was drunk for businesses, and they evaporate when I'm over the next morning. But you are, you are a true golden story of someone who held on to the idea and ran with it and made a great business out of it. Yeah, maybe you got to drink more. And maybe I do, yeah. That's a, you're, yeah. You have a lot of good things to say. I, I quoted, actually, in the introduction to this show that it's, it's a great time for a drinker. Yes. yes which is yes, a lovely yes. positive message that yes, you don't see very is. often associated with drink right now. Yeah, I just uh, someone gave me a business card recently that said uh, on the back... Uh, a no good story ever starts with I was having a salad with a friend. <laughs> <laughs> so just to give a little bit of uh, an introduction as to what Q drinks are, uh, you you currently have seven products at the moment, right? Yeah, we have a, a line of spectacular spectacular carbonated mixers. So uh, a tonic water or two tonic waters now, a ginger beer, a ginger ale, a club soda, a cola, and a sparkling grapefruit. And kind of the, the concept is that you're kind of agonizing about what gin you should use or what whiskey you should use, uh, and the mixture should have the you know be the same quality and sophistication, um, and should really uh, complement or augment the spirit rather than just being a blast of sugar that covers up all the terrific subtleties. Yeah, and it's very funny because before I was even introduced to you, I actually had um, I had the Q ginger beer in my pantry. And I remember I was having gin and tonics with uh, friends. I think I, maybe it was around Easter sometime. And I was thinking, this is we were drinking this Never Sink gin that we have here in front of us here today. But all I could taste, like you said, was the sugar. Yeah. And some people just think that that's, that's as good as it gets because all you know is Schweppes. And yeah. that's all you can choose for tonic yeah. water. But that was exactly what uh, instigated you to go and, and lead to setting up a company. It was, it was your disappointment in the sugar. Yeah, that and the, the six gin tonics I had that gave me a kind of moment of clarity. But yeah, I was um, at that point I lived in Fort Greene, which is, you know, we're here in Bushwick now. It's a 
neighborhood of Brooklyn, just uh, just a couple minutes away. And I had a b- bunch of friends over at my house for gin and tonics. And granted, this was, you know, I was probably 30 years old, so I could have six gin and tonics on a Tuesday night and be, be fine on a Wednesday morning. Um, but we were drinking drink after drink, and a couple drinks in, my teeth got sticky. And I was like, that's kind of weird. Um, picked up the bottle of tonic water. One of my good friends was telling the, the same stupid story he always tells. So I picked up the bottle of tonic water. And looked at the ingredients. You know, something like 32 grams of high fructose corn syrup, natural and artificial flavors, sodium benzoate. I was like, that's kind of weird. I thought tonic water was this like bitter water thing. Um, one of my other good friends, actually the uh, the girlfriend of one of my good friends, now the wife and mother of his two kids, she had like a stomach ache that night, so she wasn't drinking. She was drinking Sprite instead. So I was like, hey, Sarah, can I uh, look at your Sprite for a second? She said, sure. Looked at the ingredients. 32 grams of high fructose corn syrup, natural and artificial flavors, sodium benzoate. I was like, this is crazy. Like, these are the same things. One's just, like, green and the other one's yellow. Um, and my friends, good, being good friends, just said, you know, whatever. Um, but the kind of the idea just stuck in my head for some reason. And again, gin has a way of clarifying your thinking. Uh, and somehow the whole world was clear, but the moonlight was shining down on this Tangeray bottle, glowing in the moonlight, you know, absolutely perfect. And... Uh, uh, looked up and you know, it was a gorgeous summer night um, and my best friends in the world were there and everything was great. Then I looked over at the bottle of tonic water and I was like, what a piece of crap. You know, the labels peeling off, the thing's crusty on top, the plastic is dented, like the liquid inside was obviously filled with high fructose corn syrup. And so I was like, why is it not a better tonic water? You know what? I'm going to make a better tonic water. And, uh, and you did. Long story short, I did. Long story a bit longer. Next morning, when my head cleared, figured out what tonic water was supposed to be. It's supposed to be this quinine, which is like this bitter, um, bitter thing that comes from a bark, um, a little sugar and carbonated water. But the big soda companies had been treating the thing like a soda. So instead of had to make, making it something that's like makes the most delicious gin and tonics, they were making something that was the cheapest and easiest thing to produce. Um, so I said, I'm going to do it the complete opposite way. I'm going to make something that makes the best gin and tonics going. So, yeah, I ordered this bag, bag of bark on the Internet and started mixing stuff up in my kitchen. My roommate at the time was complaining about the mess and saying that we're going to get busted for running a meth lab. And I had pots and pans and, you know, to his defense, it was a huge mess. And uh, eventually came up with like a little uh, a syrup, a quinine syrup. And I'd make uh, uh, homemade gin and tonics for people. And uh, people loved them. And... Uh, that was the kind of the very beginning. And before we start to explore and understand more about how you crafted this business, I want to go back to the very start and understand more about you, the man who created Q Drinks. Um, where, whereabouts did you grow up? Upper West Side of New York City. Yeah. And uh, where did you go to college? Brown. Brown? Yeah. What did you go to Brown for? Uh, public policy. Wow. Nothing to do with nothing. So what led you to go and study public policy? So the real answer is... Um, that was the uh, major, whatever the concentration, whatever they call it, with the fewest requirements. So, and is that, was that actually the reason that led you to do it? Or did yeah, you like I'm it? interested in, like, you'll, we'll get into my career at some point, but I was, uh, I'm interested in public policy, uh, particularly as it re- uh, affects cities. You know, I'm from New York City and I like fundamentally believe in cities and people should live in cities. It's like good for the world, it's good for people. Um, and uh, there's some, Kind of big policy reasons why people suburbanized in the, in the la- over the last 70 years. Um, so I'm like, conceptually interested in that. Uh, at the same time, if the math had been dinner different and I had to take like 14 classes I didn't want to take, uh, I wouldn't have majored or concentrated in it. And uh, 
uh, I just really wanted to take things I was interested in. And that was kind of the way, the, that's how the cards worked out. I also kind of figured out pretty early on that whatever I majored in, concentrated in, didn't really matter at all. Like, I always knew I was going to do, like, my own thing, so it didn't really matter. And at that stage, what kind of courses were you taking? What stuff did pique your interest? Uh, or things that, you know, looking back, you can reflect on that probably had some sort of an influence on what so you So the real, real answer, what I did is I just took the best teachers. So I would just find out, like, from the kids who were older than me, just like, hey, what was an awesome class? Like, which one did you like the best? And it tended to be teachers who were fantastic. So I took, like, a great class from this guy, Ted Sizer, who did a lot on uh, education, like setting up um, uh, public schools and kind of setting up a public school system. And it was just, like, an awesome class. And then you, like, design your own public school. Uh, then I did another class on, like, uh, postmodern legal theory. Like, who the hell think what that thinks? would think that's interesting. But the teacher was really great, and it made it really interesting. Uh, so it depended. I took another great class on the history of the American Revolution. Um, so it really depended on, I took an art class, uh, like the history of architecture, where they like, traced the, the architectural movements over the last, you know, whatever, 5,000 years of humanity, which was super interesting. So kind of bounced around on things I thought were interesting that I could get really excited about. But it, like to me, that sounds like the dream college experience because you kind of get to do everything that you want to do. You're constantly engaged and constantly interested. Yeah, yeah. as opposed fan- to it's fantastic. And then whatever. It's also that's the academic side. There's also the social side, which was fantastic too. Um, but yeah, 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 it was, it was terrific. So that's I, a I love love the experience, and B uh, yeah, that's how I that's how I gravitated towards, towards public policy because it like let me take I can kind of just self-justify anything like oh that education one is can be justified as education policy okay that counts for the, the, the your numbers um, so this kind of let me do whatever I wanted to do and where did that take you after you finished uh, up in Brown uh, I got a fellowship to go to Sonoma County California um, with a fellowship an economic something or another with the economic development board of Sonoma County California economic vitality fellow so that was basically a uh, a one-year job without health care um to work uh for the economic development board of sonoma county and um i don't know how much you know about sonoma county but it's right next to napa and their economic development is not the economic development that you know uh, another city might have who wants to uh, attract a big parts pro- processing plant or like a thousand you know industrial jobs they were looking for kind of high wage jobs that would throw off a lot of taxes but have a relatively low impact on the kind of the community and the built environment so uh out there i don't know i had a good time my job was to come up with a um a program that supported micro enterprise or home-based businesses this was in the late 90s and it was kind of just the beginning of the uh, i guess the internet and uh, a bunch of people were, like, leaving San Francisco for a couple reasons. One, to, you know, start advertising agencies or some cons- consulting groups out of their houses or sell things like yo-yos on the Internet. And um, it was really good for the economy because people were working. And it was also good for the communities because instead of being on the roads commuting to work, they were working out of their houses. So they were in the neighborhoods during the day, which obviously is good for the carbon impact, but also uh, really good just to make sure that no bad people are around or that the neighborhood's safe for the kids coming home from school. So they kind of liked that. And uh, I got hired to kind of create a support network for them. Interesting. And then just to skip ahead to the next step in that uh, evolution of your career and the, the kind of tentacles of it. Yeah. At some stage during this time, 9-11 happened. Uh, not yet. Let me uh, tell you how actually Sonoma County relates to the 
the, the drinks business to the carbonated mixer business. So I was uh, when I got out there, uh, the county of Sonoma put me up at like um, uh, an employee's of the county's house. Uh, you know, I rented a room or something, and I had left. Um, all my friends, New York City, Brown, I had an awesome time, and I kind of left uh, my life uh, and moved out to San Francisco, uh, to Sonoma, and, you know, moved into this kind of suburban family's house, and they were really, really nice, but this was not what I was looking to do with my time. So I uh, found the ad in the paper and moved into this guy's got a guest house, guest cabin, up in the, up in the hills above Calistoga, and uh, he was a terrific, he was a, kind of a ne'er-do-well slash terrific guy. He was a, uh, had a really, really good time. He um, had this house with 200-foot red, redwood trees. My little house had no indoor shower, but it was overlooking a gorgeous stream with an outdoor shower. And he would have big parties with all these folk musician friends coming on over all, all, all the time. Um, and it was just a good time. He, among other things, made his own wine. So he... Um, knew a guy up in Cloverdale, which is a northern Sonoma County, where um, it's like almost like this old Italian guy. I think the guy died or something or moved somewhere, and there's this like field of grapes that no one was really using. And Sean had some like permission to pick the grapes. And what he would do is he would like organize a gang, and we'd like cut, out, cut the grapes and um, crush them and um, barrel them, and then it let it sit for a year and then bottle them. And basically, he did that in order to drink whatever free or whatever it was. He would, but he would have go basically through a, a barrel of wine every year by himself, and he and his friends, you know, make six barrels or something. Uh, with about twelve or fourteen cases, he would give them to some fancy restaurant in Marin, and he would uh, do that in exchange for a gift certificate. And uh, he'd go and uh, have dinner at the place, and he'd look at the wine list, look for his label, which he called Buffalo Blood, and he would look at it and said, "You know, what's this Buffalo Blood? I've never heard of that." And the waitress would say, well, it's like beyond biodynamic. It's like wild wine. So they pick it. They don't even put finishing yeast on it. They basically just put it in a barrel and then put it in a bottle. And when it's good, it's phenomenal. When it's bad, it's really, really bad. And you will know it immediately. And uh, we'll replace it. So uh, when I had this idea for the tonic water, I was like, wow, if that Yahoo can make great wine, I can make a great tonic water. So it was like that confidence is what I guess... What's, what, what did it for me? And do you think it kind of simplified the production process I, for someone to look on the outset to get an idea like you had to create tonic? Did it make it seem much more approachable by seeing I, what I you I guess so. Like, I guess it broke it up into steps. Like, oh, you just cut the grapes. Then you crush them. Then you barrel them. Okay, you do those th- three things. How do you do it? Oh, you need a big thing to put the grapes in. So I guess it did that. I think it was more just a confidence thing. Yeah. Like if that guy, like, I guess one of the things you learn when you grow up is that like no one's the expert right and uh, uh i learned that at, at, at college but also when that guy was making this good grapes and wine he wasn't like he knew what he was doing either so then i had the confidence with a tonic water so it was the breaking into pieces but i think more than anything it was the confidence okay and then to, to, <coughs> so, to touch on that then in the next part oh so nine the, get into nine eleven. so actually sp- skipping a couple years in san francisco this was the go-go days of uh the first go-go days of the internet and someone offered me way too much money um to do some online marketing i think for, for disney and i was in charge of a couple people and a lot of money and i was like well you're gonna pay me all that and you don't know what you're doing either sure i'll do that so i did that for a couple years and then a friend was starting a company which was going to be the next microsoft so i joined him and that was doing well until what was that company called it's called equill and um 
then I guess it was the 2000 recession hit, and um, instead of being, I guess 2001, yeah, because it was 2001, um, instead of being the next from Microsoft, we got bought out uh, for cents on the dollar, Microsoft. Um, and so I, you know, I was getting paid all this money from everybody, uh, but didn't really have that much time to spend it uh, or the inclination to spend it. So I then uh, had some time. So I spent a couple of months traveling. Uh, through Europe, and uh, came back and visited my parents on the Upper West Side on September 9th, uh, 2001. And um, I uh, was obviously here on September 11th, and uh, the world blew up, and uh, my flight on the 13th was canceled, and on the 20th, I didn't feel comfortable flying, but on the 27th, I by the time I my flight actually did go out. I decided that I was going to move back to New York and help. I just really wanted to help uh, rebuild New York City. So I packed my stuff up. I got back to New York uh, right before Thanksgiving. And by the first week of December, I was working for a thing called the Alliance for Downtown New York, which manages the business improvement district for lower Manhattan. And um, I eventually had a really awesome job. But at the very beginning, uh, my job was overseeing power washers who were cleaning the debris off the retail storefronts in uh, uh, the area right around the former World Trade Center site. And um, I don't know if anybody you remember, but uh, it was a little depressing being down there. Like literally two or three months later, there was still just like debris and just like crap on all everywhere that had like fallen off the World Trade Center. Um, and uh, so... We, we, I was in charge of getting some power washers. So I signed up, I don't know, two or three power washers, uh, companies who would, like, clean clean everything. And my, uh, like, secret trick management technique was these guys would work at night because they just couldn't do it during the day. So I would go out to the bar at night, and then at 1 o'clock in the morning as I was going home, I would stop off down at the at the site that they were working at. And, uh, Cuss them all off guys. Yeah, and then they're like, holy shit, who is this guy showing up? And he's me, on the and, ball. He's on the ball, and he's always happy. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd show up, and anyway, they did the job really well, uh, really quickly. And then, um, I don't know, I was there for about two or three years, and it was awesome. My job for the last two years was coming up with... Um, ideas of getting them funded and implemented that would revitalize the area. And I did a lot with telecom and a lot with technology. And it was, it was awesome, or it started off being awesome. At the beginning, there was just a ton of money flowing. Um, people, if it was a good idea, people said, yeah, go do it. Uh, eventually, it got very political. Um, and it was during this time when I was at the Alliance for Downtown New York, I had the idea for the tonic water. Um, and that's when that, that, yeah. that evening in Brooklyn happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we get into those next stages and the evolution of Q drinks, we're yeah. going to go to a quick break and then we can come back in here at all. Great. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. 
Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, host of the Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. Tune in every Wednesday at 6 p.m. to hear some of the best people in wine tell you about what's going on in the world of wine. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Right. Welcome back to Why Food. I'm here with Jordan Silbert, and we are discussing his evolution and career path before he led into Q Drinks. So um, before we went to a break, we were just talking about your lifestyle, where it took you, and just up until that point, you had been working uh, for the, just want to get the correct name, the Alliance for Downtown New York. Yeah, or Downtown Alliance. Downtown Alliance for yeah. New York. And uh, then during that time, you decided that you want to go to Yale Business School. Um, what, yeah. was, what was the interest in deciding to, to make that step? So, as I said, the job was awesome for the first couple of years. Um, eventually, it got really political. Um, and kind of the thing that really broke the camel's back is I had this idea that, not to get too geeky, but it was going to be kind of a wireless redundancy system for lower Manhattan. It was going to have lasers on the top of tall buildings in lower Manhattan and basically uh, enable anybody uh, or 95% of the employer uh, employers with 50 or more employees to have a little thing in their window that they could uh, connect to the to the mesh network that would um, enable them to keep their data and voice uh, connection if something happened in the streets again. And in so doing, position the, the, the area as uh, the place for businesses that want to stay in business. And great, great, great. The governor announced it. I thought it was going to be awesome. It was the first one in the world. Uh, and then Verizon's lobbyists kind of put the kibosh on it. And that got me pretty frustrated because uh, I'd been working for, for two years on it. And I just kind of wanted to have more control of the, over the funding sources. So I... Because, um, again, go back to my experience at Brown. Like, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Um, um, and uh, I wanted to be in a position where I had con- con- have more control. And so I thought if I had business school, I could f- figure out how people can give me the money to do, do stuff rather than run it through uh, the government or some other nonprofit. And uh, so, yeah, I went back to Yale's business school. And, and was the initial kind of step of, of thinking about, you know, how people can give you the funding, was it to work within the lines of public policy at that time? Yeah, I thought I would give me flexibility to do what I want, um, ultimately, you know. And how was that experience at Yale Business School? So I had a fantastic time, um, and I'm doing pretty well now. Um, but my first year at business school was really challenging. Um, there was all these, like, set classes, and they were so, like, academic and, like, all this homework, which was, seemed so unreal worldy. And I kind of went back to business school to kind of give me the tools um, to be able to do what I wanted to do better. Um, whether it be to get people to give me money to be able to do something or actually do the thing better. And we were doing this, like, all these, like, esoteric, totally boring homework assignments. So I um, had a great summer in between my two years of business school. I went down to Panama and um, worked for with a guy who was uh, revitalizing the colonial old quarter of Panama City. And that was fun. And I came back, and I was like, you know what? I'm not doing that stupid stuff anymore. I want to do stuff that I want to do. Like, there's so many awesome things out there. I'm not doing, like, math homework anymore. Um, so one of my professors had uh, had started Honest Tea, 
guy named Barry Nailbuff, who's just like a wonderful guy. And I came back and talked to him and I said, hey, I had this idea for a tonic water company. I had this syrup that people love. I think I want to give this a shot. Can I just like do an independent study with you for a year? And he, Barry is like one of the smartest people on the planet as far as I can tell. Um, but not only really smart, but also really practical. He said, you know, sure, I'd be happy to do that with you. Uh, however, you only have one assignment. I do not need 100-page paper on whatever market study. I need one thing. I need the last day of, um, last day of school to put, put a bottle on my, t- on, on, on my desk. That's, that's got to taste good. Um, because he had started on his tea, and tea is easier than tonic water, uh, not to get super technical, but the carbonation in tonic water is actually a little more complicated, and it just makes it harder to produce. You can make tea in your kitchen, literally, whereas tonic water, you can just not get the carbonation levels uh, outside of an industrial facility. So uh, neither he nor I knew that at the time, but uh, he was thinking that when they started Honest Tea, uh, he sold in some ungodly amount of tonic water to Whole Foods, um, uh, to, uh, uh, tea to, to Whole Foods, and they then had a lot of trouble making it. So he said, okay, you start by trying to figure out how to make the goddamn thing. Um, so I spent that year uh, calling glass uh, bottle companies, um, actual production facilities. And uh, eventually I got one production facility up in Worcester, Massachusetts, who made the mistake of picking up the phone once. And basically I figured out within three seconds of talking to the guy that he wasn't going to pick up the phone again. Um, so I basically said, can I come up and ask you a question? So I drove up to Worcester. And uh, every time I would have a question, I would just like show up in Worcester and ask him a question. So I spent a year doing that. And by the end, I had a, a prototype that was pretty good. Um, and that's what I sold into um, Gramercy Tavern, who was our first customer. Um, Jim Meehan, who later went on to start PDT, he was our, our first customer. Then Sasha from Milk and Honey was our second. Um, Sasha, I give him, I guess Scott, Sasha is the first customer, or was the first customer, because um, he's the first one who paid me. He paid me uh, cash out of the register. I deli- did my first delivery at 2.30 in the morning uh, after close, and he paid me cash out of the register. It's an amazing start yeah. to a story because... Yeah. A lot of the people that we've had on the show over time, they've talked about the grinding out phase of starting it and then, you know, the evolution and, and how it really took pace and took yeah. a... It, it got its own identity. Yeah. Whereas your start is special because you went to Gramercy Tavern, you went to Milk and Honey at a time when uh, cocktail mixology was really starting to take shape yeah. and Milk and Honey was one of the bars that was that was the blueprint for cocktail bars I in the world. Was, I think it was the... Or the... Yeah, Quite, quite possibly. And then you went to Blue Willstone Burns, yep. so you started going towards fine dining. Yep. And then the next step was when Plymouth Gin got in touch, yep. which led to a New York Times article, yep. which exposed you to the whole world. Exactly. And that was all in the space of how much time? Three months, four months? Yeah. yeah. So looking back, and we're going to you know, fill in the blanks yeah. in between that, a lot of people will discuss the difficulties or reflecting on things that they would have changed. For you, what was the most difficult stage in the business over the past 12 years? Huh. Um, I honestly don't spend that much time thinking about what was difficult. I always tend to think about what's difficult right now. Um, or times that kind of brought the most struggle and strife, I suppose. So a lot of it has just been patience. Um, a lot of what we've done has been not that difficult. It's just been grinding it out day in, day out. Um, from day one, uh, Every step away from the customer has been incrementally more difficult. So from day one, I had customers 
Who was first as so, so, soon as I showed them a better tonic water, they're like, oh yeah, I want a better tonic water. Can you make me a ginger ale? Uh, can you make me a ginger beer? So the customers got it. It was every step away from that uh, customer, whether it be uh, the distributor, whether it be the retailer, uh, whether it be the production facility. And I needed to figure all those things out. Some of them I could just kind of figure out on my own, but other ones were relationship based, and that I just didn't have the relationships. I didn't didn't know Joey who do, who knew Bobby. And so I had to do a lot of cold calls. And that, you know, when you say that, oh, you know, it's great that we signed on Gramsci Tavern, Blue Hill Stone Barn, and Milk and Honey as our first customers. Like, it, it is awesome. But it's also, in retrospect, the only way it would have happened. You know, I wasn't going to just, like, call up, you know, we're now at uh, Kroger. We're now at Target. We're now at Safeway Albertsons. Um, we're at some of the largest retailers in the world, and we're s- sold on Carnival Cruise Lines. Like, we're at a lot of places. None of those guys would have picked up the phone if I'd called them, you know, 12 years ago. Uh, but Jim and Sasha, they actually are looking for better stuff, or were looking for better stuff. Um, and Dan Barber was looking for a better tonic water. Uh, he wasn't actively seeking it, but when I showed up um, and I showed, hey, I got a better tonic water, he's like, oh, I'll try that. So that was the way it worked. So it's all those other steps were really difficult that took relationships. And um, you can eventually get those relationships, but you kind of have to prove yourself to know somebody who knows somebody. Yeah, I suppose that's a fair point. Um, But one of the interesting things about your business and about your approach to the business is that we all know soda gets a bad rep. Um, It's one of those it's one of those products that the customer is aware that it's it's, it's not a good product for them, uh, but they don't know what it is per se. Uh, They know that there's high fructose corn syrup because that's something that's talked about a lot. But apart from that, it's 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 something that happens in a factory and it's very much closed off. What separates your product from the generic soda that we see in, in stores? So we use, I guess there's three main differences. We use like fantastic ingredients, real ingredients from real trees and real plants. And what would, what would be used then in, by, the, by those companies as, as also, a substitute? Artificial flavors or synthetic flavors. That are, that are created in a lab. In lab, yeah. Yeah. Um, or even when they do use real stuff, they use cheap real stuff. Mm. Um, you know, you don't, you know, we're at Roberta's here. Like, there's a lot of reasons their pizza's pretty good. But part of it is they use great cheese. They use great bread. And they use great tomato sauce. Um, and that is expensive. It's $15 for a small pizza here. But part of that is because of the ingredients cost a lot. So we choose ingredients uh, regardless of cost or complexity. And I'll give you an example. In our, in, our rose, uh, in our ginger ale, we use rose oil. You know, ginger ale was our second flavor. And at the time... I don't know. I, when I look back and like, what were the inflection points for the company, and what were some of the good decisions and bad decisions I, I made? Uh, the ginger ale was one of the great ones. Um, that we had, you know, literally Jimmy was asking me for a ginger ale like the second day I saw, uh, second day after uh, I met him, um, and he had brought the tonic water into Gramsci Tavern, and he said it should be pretty easy. And it, in retrospect, now I know it would have been easy just to buy an off-the-shelf flavor, put it in, put a Q on it, and, and uh, you know, sell him a case. But what I did was I did the ginger ale, uh, and I agonized over it. I did like 26 different recipes, and I made it myself. Um, and what that did was give us kind of permission to have all these other flavors. But what I, the secret, or one of the secrets with the ginger ale is we put rose oil in our ginger ale. Um, I, when I started, I had started with kind of real ginger, like I did with tonic water, and then organic agave is the way we sweeten uh, uh, most of our flavors. I was like, I'll try that. But there was something missing. There was like a depth and complexity that wasn't, wasn't there. So I was agonizing, agonizing, agonizing. Finally, I knew 
friend of a friend like works in the perfume industry and i was like asking him like you know what any ideas this is what i'm up against like the, this is what my ginger tastes like it's just i don't know what's wrong with it he said have you tried rose oil i was like no i haven't so i tried a little rose oil and it tasted great just like added a fullness to it and it's not like a floral too floral but just added a fullness to it turns out rose oil costs a thousand dollars an ounce the good news, we don't put a, an ounce of, a gin, of rose oil in our, in, our, in our ginger ale, but we put some in it. And a big soda company in a million years would not, uh, would not do that. So we use better ingredients. That's the first thing that makes us different. Um, the next thing we do is we use a lot less sugar, and we use fancy sugar. We use organic agave or organic cane sugar, but we use a lot less of it. Um, I don't know, the line that we started that you mentioned earlier, like it's a fantastic time to be a drinker. It is a fantastic time to be a drinker. And sugar is bad for you as a, for, as a drinker for a lot of reasons. You know, sugar is not good for you, probably not good for the planet. Uh, it probably causes diabetes, probably might even cause cancer. Like it's just not good. Set aside all that and just think about it from the drinker's perspective. There are so many awesome spirits out there. You know, this gin we're drinking right now is terrific. There are hundreds of hundreds of great gins, both made by little guys and the big guys. The big guys make good stuff, uh, by and large. Um, however, if you use a mixer uh, with too much sugar, you can't taste all those subtleties. You know, the master distiller for all of these spirits has agonized over uh, what grain to use, uh, what shape the still should be, how many times to fire it through the still, what botanicals to put in, how to age it, whatever they're agonized over. They've agonized to death over this thing. And if you put a mixer in with too much sugar, you can't taste any of that. You know, think about when you're, um, you know, starting to drink and you drink uh, wine coolers or, you know, Everclear with Tang or whatever it is. You're dumping a ton of sugar on that because you don't want to taste the spirit. Um, but if you actually do want to taste the spirit, you need a, sh- a mixer with a lot less sugar. Um, so our stuff has a lot less sugar. So, again, you can taste the subtleties in a good spirit. And then the third thing is we have a lot of carbonation. So we have a custom glass bottle, which is thicker that enables us to, you know, put more carbonation in, and then we treat carbonation like an ingredient. So each of our flavors has a different carbonation level, depending on what tastes best uh, in, in, in the drink. So those are the three things that makes us different. So we use fantastic ingredients, and we pay more for them. Uh, two, uh, we use a lot less sugar. And three, we have a lot more carbonation. Definitely stands up to the typical stuff and the mainstream stuff. And it's beautiful products as well, that the way that it's shaped and the glass in it. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, I have it at home. We use it for a gin and ginger beer, and it's great for a gin mule. Um, I think it's a great product. I really, really enjoy it. Do you think that, it's, that, that, it, that there's going to be a market for these kind of artisanal uh, sodas going forward? Have you seen that there's been a development in it in the, in the recent future? So as mixers, certainly. Like you yeah. look at all the numbers and you see premium spirits. You know, premium spirits are now you know, basically absolute vodka and above for as two-thirds of the, of, the, uh, of the market for spirits these days. Like that's where all the growth has been over the last decade and a half. And it just doesn't make sense to mix a good spirit with a crappy mixer. We're just going to go to another quick break here, um, and then we're going to come back and touch on the last topic.
welcome back to Why Food. I'm here with Jordan Silbert, and we are continuing continuing on the story of the great evolution of Q drinks. Um, so, can we talk a little bit more as to to what you have right now? We talked about the tonic was the initial drink, and then it expanded into the ginger ale. Was it a quick expansion from there on to move into the the five other products that you carry right so, now? So, by the way, it took me four years to get to the ginger ale. Right. Okay. So after that, it's been basically a flavor a year. So the two that I'm most excited about, actually the one I'm most excited about right now is our sparkling grapefruit, which is phenomenal in Palomas, which is with tequila, or my wife is drinking it with mezcal right now. And uh, it's just like super easy, but also incredibly refreshing, complex, just like a delicious summer drink. So it's this sparkling grapefruit with basically either tequila or mezcal and a, uh, a squeeze of lime. And if you really want to get fancy, you can put a salt rim on it. So that is pretty awesome. And then the other one, we just came out with a new tonic water. Um, it's purpose-built for London dry gins. So what London dry gin is, you know, Tangeray or Beefeater, which is like a big junipery gin. And compared to our original tonic water, the new Q Indian tonic is has more bitter, more quinine, a little more sugar, and the same amount of carbonation. So it kind of stands up to the, uh, the big gins a lot better, and it's kind of more like the quintessential um, uh, gin and tonic tonic as opposed to our first tonic which is designed for things like this never to sink uh gin which have a little more subtlety going because the original tonic is so dry it's so it's like you know 60 less sugar than schweppes um so it's so dry that you can really taste all those those crazy subtleties whereas with a kind of a traditional gin with a real you know regular british gin and tonic a proper gin, british gin and tonic i think you need kind of a bigger tonic water and that's what we just came out with Right. And are all these things kind of in response to what the customers are requesting? Or are these now ideas that are happening back of house and kind of ideas where Mostly you Mostly just like my mouth, like what I'm excited about drinking yeah. is the real answer. Very interesting. And I know you start, You talked at the start about how you wanted to have it shaped in glasses. Now you're obviously expanding and you're, you're moving into cans and things like that. Has it been difficult to go from focusing with people who really are educated at home in terms of um, people who want to make quality drinks at home and people who are in bars like mixologists has it been difficult to make that switch into the mainstream just the public audience that may have an interest in so the answer is no like I think that's the difference between us and like a lot of craft uh, spirit companies like Everybody drinks gin and tonic. Everybody drinks Moscow mules. Everybody drinks vodka sodas. Everybody drinks Jack and Gingers. And then a lot of them are buying um, good spirits already. Now they have a good mixer to mix with it. And it's pretty darn easy. You put a little spirit in, you put some mixer in. You know, this isn't some like artisanal bitter or uh, some like cacao liqueur. Um, this is tonic water, a ginger beer, a ginger ale. People know how to, how to, uh, how to use it. And in terms of the interest, you know, all these people. It's not just uh, mixologists in Brooklyn who are buying better gins uh, or better vodkas or better rums or better whiskeys. And those people, you know, it's not like I'm a genius marketer. Those people wanted to buy better mixers. They just didn't have the option of doing that. So it's been pretty seamless. And it's actually us, the market was there before we were there. And it kind of, we've been kind of sucked into it, I think. I, I really enjoy your um, your faith and your confidence in your product. <laughs> uh, the way everything is labeled is spectacular. Yes. Um, I think that definitely attracts people to it. Uh, I'm just looking at the products here online and they're obviously gorgeous, but uh, you have every right to feel confident behind it and to, to, to label them as spectacular. Now, generally, we finish out each show because along the lines, usually it's in food. And I ask the question, what is the food industry giving you? This is a little bit different. But in the soda industry, you have access to the food and drink industry. What has it given you since you've gone into it from comparison to your past careers? So I've had a fantastic time. Like, I get to go to 
literally the best restaurants on the planet because they're the ones who are buying our stuff. Um, and I get to say thank you, but I also just get to have a dinner or a drink there, and that's yeah. pretty darn fun. Um, so I've been to most of the major cities in America with this job, and uh, I've eaten at some, eaten and drank at some of the best places literally on the planet. So that's one thing. The other thing is I've made stuff. Um, and my mother was a potter. Um, so growing up, uh, and she used to make bowls and plates and uh, things like that, and she stopped when she got pregnant with me because of all the chemicals. But growing up, the most valuable things in my in my house, the thing, you know, I was a rambunctious kid, and um, I'd break everything. And the one thing I was not allowed to break, or else there'd be, you know, big trouble, was the stuff that she had made, the cups and the bowls and the plates that we still eat off of when we go to, go to her house. That was what was valuable, not the TV, not my great-great-grandmother's whatever glass vase or whatever it was. It was the stuff that my mother made. And so that's what the food industry has kind of given me. It's the opportunity to make something that I'm really, really proud of. Um, and that... You know, there's a lot of long nights and a lot of frustrating mornings. And um, whenever that happens, I look over at a bottle of the stuff we made. And it's like, wow, I made that. The, that would not exist in the world had I not had this crazy idea and then grind it away for, for the last 10 years. And that's incredibly rewarding. Um, and that's just kind of what I feel really appreciative uh, for the industry. It kind of enabled me to make something. Fantastic. And after hearing the story, if people want to go out and buy your product, where can they uh, find it in the most accessible of means? So we have a tracker on our website, Q Drinks, Q the letter, drinks like the plural of drinks, qdrinks.com. Just go to About Us. There's a big um, uh, you know, map where you can plug in your zip code and tell you where to go. But uh, most of the leading retailers in the country have us now from, you know, from Whole Foods to, uh, to Kroger to Target to, to Albertsons to Safeway. Um, and then we're at you know, thousands of better bars and restaurants around the country as well. Super. Well, thank you very much for coming on the oh, show today. And, and I should say Amazon. Amazon sells a lot of our stuff as well. That's a very good one. It's available online. Got to ship to your door. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a wonderful story, and I'm so glad you've shared it here with me and our listeners. Cheers. And thanks very much to Megan as well for orchestrating all this today. Um, I want to say a massive thank you as well to Heritage Radio for putting such a wonderful platform out for conversation uh, for so many various topics within the world of food and drink and wine. If you want to get into more shows on the station, you can visit heritageradionetwork.org. And please donate to the station. It's, uh, it's funded by the listeners. So if you want to click the beating heart in the top right corner, you can donate some money towards uh, what we're trying to provide here. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate and subscribe to the show. That small action has a huge reaction for the show's popularity. I also want to say a massive thank you to you for listening to today's show. If you ever want to get in touch with me, please email me at whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org or you can also follow me on Instagram at whyfoodpodcast where you can see the most recent video that I put up with Skepta, a bottle of Never Sink Gin and uh, a Q ginger beer, which was really, really good. Until next week, thank you very much, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.